welcome and thank you for coming. Uh, these lights are bright for 8.30 in the morning. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, so this session is, is entitled Listening to Our Muslim Neighbors. And as you can see uh, by the title and by the setup up here, we're especially going to be listening to one of our Muslim neighbors. And I'm going to uh, introduce Adina uh, here in just a few minutes. Uh, but if you'll indulge me just for six to eight minutes here to frame this conversation and let you know uh, what brings us into this, into this session and what we hope to accomplish uh, through it. Um, we do want to give a majority of our time to Adina, but let, let me set it up in this way. What we want this to be and what this is for us really is a conversation between friends. Um, and in other words, what we hope to do here is not to set up an academic panel. We're not necessarily trying to do an interfaith dialogue event or, uh, or those kinds of things. We really do want, we're certainly not up here to debate one another. We really want to have a conversation between friends and that's true for us. And we hope that this session, it will be true in the room, that this will be a conversation between all of us as friends. But it's also important for us to say, and we all know this, that while this is a conversation between friends, it's not, uh, it's not just a casual conversation. Um, this conversation happens actually in uh, a fairly heavy context, a context that we're all familiar with and that we know about. And that context in includes increasing levels of hostility and violence in our world. Much of those hostilities and much of the violence perpetuated by religious people um, in the name of religion. And certainly a lot of those hostilities and that violence affecting religious communities all over the world. Disproportionately affecting Christian and Muslim communities, the two largest religious communities in the world. A, a recent Pew uh, research survey um, in global hostilities uh, identified Christianity as the most persecuted religion in the world and Islam just a hair behind it, which makes sense for the two largest communities in the world, but still, nevertheless, a heavy context. And really, we don't have to go any further than our recent news feed, as we all know. Just a little over a month ago in New Zealand, 50 Muslims were killed. Another 50 were injured as they were together for their Friday prayers, and assuming you know that Friday is the Muslim Sunday, uh, so to speak, as they were gathering in, in two mosques in New Zealand for prayers, for community prayers, uh, a tragedy struck them and many were killed. And then just a little over a week ago in Sri Lanka, what some people are saying is a retaliation uh, event, um, 250 Christians were killed in three churches on Easter Sunday. This week, just a few days ago, in Southern California, just outside San Diego, um, a, a synagogue was, the, was, the, was victimized by an attack on the last day of Passover. And so we know this, these cycles of violence, these cycles of retaliation. And Adina, you know, I, I hate to say this, don't want to say it, but it's hard not to be concerned knowing that next week, the holy month of Ramadan and the, the Muslim calendar is beginning. Just raises these concerns as we seem to have these actions and these, these, uh, these retaliation cycles. And it's not just those individual events, but it's also ongoing systemic problems in our world. Um, a, a 
another recent Pew survey said that 2016 um, marked the largest surge in uh, religious oppression, religious restrictions by governments and by larger communities uh, in almost 20 years uh, across our world. And we have many examples from China, some of the things going on in China right now, especially targeting some specific Muslim communities in Myanmar, uh, some Buddhist nationalists, especially creating one of the largest human rights issues that we have right now uh, against some, some Muslim communities, but also in India, Hindu nationalists, Christians, and Muslims, and Sikhs are, are, uh, are suffering in that, and other places. Um, in the Middle East, many Christian communities are, are restricted uh, from the religious freedom or persecuted or driven out. It's also worth noting that in Muslim-majority countries, uh, many, many Muslims also suffer from so th this is a heavy context. And when we come to our own backyard in Europe and in North America, not to over quote Pew, but uh, there is also a lot of data that shows that in the last couple of years, we have the most hostility in the United States, especially against Jews and Muslims, that we've had since the months right after 9-11. Um, and by that we mean verbal attacks, uh, personal attacks, arson attacks on, on mosques and synagogues, shooting events, and so forth. And so we're dealing with all of this, and just, we are going to move more toward a conversation here, not stay so heavy, but this is real context. Even on our campus here at Pepperdine this year, as has been mentioned, and, and many of you know, we've had a challenging year. Borderline shooting happened in October. Uh, a number of our students, uh, undergraduate students, were affected. One of our young women, a first-year student, Elena Housley, was killed, and that was a very traumatic event for us. Right after that, we had the Woolsey fire, which threatened all of Malibu and the whole surrounding area and affected our community. Just a few weeks after that, the Westboro Baptist Church was lining up on the lower part of our campus. And they lined up with their pickets and their signs and their megaphones and they got on the news and they held up signs telling our students and telling our community that God had sent the shooter and God had sent the fires because of our lack of faithfulness. And so we have these kinds of things and you think about the rise, an alarming rise of Christian militia groups in the United States. Uh, we have all of these things that create a fairly heavy context and just for our students, Sarah and I were a part of a lot of this. They're grappling with this, trying to figure out how do you respond to the Westboro Baptist Church? And in some ways, what brings us into this conversation in this room are our own attempts to grapple with these things. So these, these, are, these are big things, and we're certainly not going to solve all these problems this morning, or even try to. But Adina and I, let, let, us, let us let you, as I bring my comments, introduction comments to a close, this is our conviction. Our conviction is that the most powerful antidote to these challenges, the most powerful antidote is not a set of policies. It's not making sure we get the right candidates in office. It's not even education, as important as all those things are and as much as we're, we participate in those things. The most important antidote, we believe, and the thing that feeds those other is simple friendship. 
And that's what we want to participate in. That's what we want to model. That's what we want to invite others into, is simple friendship. That's what we're trying. That's what we're pursuing. And we want you to know that when we say simple friendship, by simple we don't mean easy. We don't mean cheap. We don't mean just superficial niceties. We don't mean just toleration. We mean friendship. Friendship that seeks trust. And trust must be earned, and it takes time. Friendship that is willing to take risks, to step out of our comfort zone. And I hope we've, Adina and I have done a number of events, but I know you appreciate the fact that Adina's presence here right now is, is part of her willingness to take risks and to, to step out of comfort zones, to be with us and to trust us. We want to honor each other. We want to challenge each other. We want to respect each other. Respect each other sometimes enough to disagree. And as Adina and I sit here as friends and share that for the next few minutes, we can say we disagree on some really, really, really important things. And things that we both consider to have eternal importance. And yet friendship is possible and important. From a Christian perspective, of course, what brings us into this room is a Christian worldview, a Christian vision. And we know that the Christian worldview is not based, John 3.16 does not say, for God so tolerated the world that he set up religious freedom policies. It says that God so loved the world that God sent his son, and that we're invited to replicate that, to model that, to embody that, to, to be witness to that. And the, the message of the incarnation itself, which brings us together, the, I, I would argue that the central message of the incarnation is that when God, from the Christian perspective, wanted to provide the clearest revelation in history, God did that through risky friendship. I think that's the best way to the incarnation. And so we want to pursue that. Last thing that I'll say in my introduction is this. I love Harbor and I love when people come in from all over the country. I spend the other 364 days of my year with 18 to 22 year olds on this campus. Um, and I will tell you that young people who care about faith crave this. They are looking for permission, and they are looking for models. They are looking for, to, to explore whether or not this is possible. True friendship across even lines of, of disagreement um, about important things. And we all know that young, younger generations are flowing out the back doors of our churches at alarming rates. That is not because they don't care about faith and spirituality. I would argue many of them care intensely about faith and spirituality. But they're leaving, and we're grappling with all the reasons why. Even the suburban churches that are growing are really just picking up the overflow of the exodus. And I think a lot of that is not going to be addressed through new worship styles or through exciting leaders or through programs, as important as all those things are. I think young people especially are wanting to know what does it mean to practice radical discipleship and can we practice radical, embracing, inclusive friendship with people in our world. Adina, thank you so much for being here.
doing this with me and doing this with us this morning. So let me introduce Adina Lecker. Um, and uh, I, we, we are going to give us uh, give her her time, and I want to look down here just to make sure, I mean, really this is a personal conversation, but she has some pretty impressive professional credentials, so I want to get those right. She is a consultant and the former communications director, director of policy and programming for IMPACT, which is the Muslim Public Affairs Council, one of the more important Muslim organizations in the country. She's been uh, featured on numerous media outlets from CNN to MSNBC, Fox News, CBS TV. She's been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times. We could keep going, but I won't. She recently was appointed to Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti's service cabinet. She's the co-founder and chair of New Ground, a Muslim-Jewish uh, partnership for peace. She has a podcast called Meeting the Moment, which uh, is fairly new, and she, I just found out has won some awards for one of the most exciting new podcasts in the country, and a number of other things. She might mention a few other things, but really, you put all those things on her resume, and the most impressive thing about Adina, professionally, is that she is a Pepperdine wave. <laughs> yeah, she's a Pepperdine wave, and uh, is your mic up on by the way? Nice. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and uh, so she's she's an alum here, and so I want to start, Adina, by just asking you: Are you a proud wave? Well, of course, sure. I'm a very, a very proud wave, which is the reason that I come back over and over again by invitation and, and not invitation sometimes. I, um, my, I, the two years I spent here on campus were really formative for me. It was uh, probably 15 years ago now. Um, but I was one on the long, slow path for my master's degree. It took me nine years to get it done, not my proudest, uh, <laughs> not my proudest slog. But um, it, it, yeah, it was an incredible experience, and I just got to uh, appreciate the campus so much and the culture so much. Well, I know part of this is what will come out, but I, 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 be, we'd like to know what's it like to be a Muslim at a Christian university like Pepperdine, what that was that experience like. Um, but let me ask first, uh, in your years here, in that slow slog, what do you think about Churches of Christ? You know, I found, so two things stand out to me. One, I love the singing. Um, the music is phenomenal. And for me and my tradition, we don't have a singing tradition. Um, we have recitation of the Quran. I'm happy to answer questions about this stuff later. But um, but I love the, yeah, that, that aspect just touches my soul in a different way. So I love that. And I've always loved the family spirit um, that I felt here on campus and that I felt in the Church of Christ community at large. Um, and I always felt part of that family. Um, and you know, we, I had my bumpy moments. I will, you know, you can answer questions about that too, but it was, uh, but I always felt embraced and that was, uh, that was, yeah, that, that was great. <laughs> yeah. Well, you have to be careful in an audience like this saying that you like our singing because a group like this can break out in song at any moment. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful. Yeah, we'll say, well, yeah, I would be happy to hear it later. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's, Let's start a conversation to friends, as, as I just advertised. And by the way, we, we hope to give a few minutes uh, for even some Q&A from the audience uh, toward the end of this. And so be thinking about that at, in a spirit of learning about Adina's story and about her community. But let me just start by just asking you generally. Tell us about yourself, your story, your family, what, whatever sure. it is. 
Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is my pleasure and my honor to be here with you this morning. In my tradition, um, we have a tradition of starting by saying, in the name of God, most compassionate, most merciful. Setting our intention of you know, what, what we're setting out to do, and that, that's the spirit in which I greet you this morning, um, and, uh, and the spirit of, of this conversation, hopefully. I really appreciate your opening remarks so much because you set up the context. I mean, there's a really painful context, and I could explain all that stuff in great detail, but I think putting it all, all on the table and sort of setting the table in that way um, hopefully opens you up to know that we're open to talking about any of those things in addition to the more personal conversation that we are um, engaged in. Um, it's all on the table. It's all relevant, and, but we can't skip over the personal and just be in the intellectual, um, global uh, big space. So, yeah, so let me model that. Um, so with a name like Adina Lekovich, any guesses where my family is from? <laughs> yeah. That's the Czech Republic. You're starting in the right zone, in the right region. It's the former Yugoslavia. So my parents are from a country that's now called Montenegro, which used to be one of the former republics of uh, the former Yugoslavia. And um, uh, my family has been Muslim for generations. And that is, a, I start with that fact because more often than not with my complexion, with my, yeah, with my blue eyes, the, I, people assume I'm a convert, um, which I don't mind. I, and um, and I, have, I also have like centuries of roots of Islam in my family. Um, so Islam came to my parents' part of the world uh, through the Ottoman Empire, of course. And, um, and Montenegro itself is a multicultural, multi-faith um, uh, country. So it's roughly evenly split between Muslims, Catholics, and uh, Protestant Christians, or either Eastern Orthodox Christians, or excuse me, I should say Serbian Orthodox Christians. Um, and it, uh, and, and in, interfaith life was just normal. The intermarriage, all of that was part, part of what my parents grew up with normally. However, they also grew up under a sort of communist socialist hybrid that squashed religion. And so for my parents, while they were born Muslim, they didn't, were, they weren't, didn't have access to their faith and they weren't allowed to practice it publicly. And they were both kind of the weirdos in their family that had a faith spark um, and wanted to pursue it. And so when they got married, they decided they needed to leave Yugoslavia because they had only uh, been able to get a middle school education between them. They grew up in farming community, you know, farming families. And um, they made it to middle school and decided that the religious freedom that they wanted for the children they hoped to have and the educational opportunities weren't gonna happen for them there. And so my parents with a middle school education between them moved to Austria, lived there for eight years and labored and labored and labored. Uh, my mom cleaning offices, my dad is a welder. Um, and they thought that that was gonna be their permanent home. But over eight years, they realized that they were never truly going to be Austrian. They were never going to be accepted as being Austrian. And it wasn't good enough for them. And so again, now not just with middle school education and a lack of uh, any language skills, but now with two babies under the age of th uh, under the ages of two and a half, my sister and I are thir about 13 months apart. Um, my parents applied for visas, and uh, and we were luckily accepted um, uh, and received green cards and came to the United States in 1978. My parents reinvented their lives twice so that they could um, build a different dream for my sister and I, and you know, and my children. I start with that long introduction because that's the, I'm a child immigrant to this country. And I'm also your typical white girl, uh, and, you know, who also grew up in this country. I grew up in San Diego, um, and, you know, as a beach, beach loving, uh, swimming, uh, you know, uh, yeah, my high school newspaper editor, and was 
also Muslims, but we were in the Christian world, you might say like a, a Christmas and Easter Christians. We were like Ramadan and Eid Muslims. So we fasted during Ramadan, but beyond, like I knew the semantics of why we did it, but I didn't have anything beyond the surface level. Um, I knew the semantics, you know, just the general categories of what it meant to be Muslim, but I had no depth of knowledge. And so for me, growing up as a young Muslim, I was very confused by my identity and had no interest in continuing my parents' faith. Um, and that, it took me a lot of years to sort of admit that publicly, but it was only when I left San Diego and moved here to LA to go to UCLA for my undergrad, and I met Muslim students on campus. One of my first days, walking up Bruin Walk, I saw a Muslim Student Association table. I was with my sister, and my parents sent us off, off together. Um, and we, were, we kind of looked at that table and did a double take, like, and I remember thinking to myself, why are they doing that away from their family? Because I had no intention of expressing my faith or exploring my faith going to college. And it was a fateful moment because it was my skepticism and curiosity that led me to, it led us to walk up to that table and introduce ourselves and start to go to weekly prayer functions to try to unravel you know, what was going on here and also like really learn for the first time. So while I was born Muslim, I actively chose to be Muslim when I was about 19 years old after an intense study of the Quran during my freshman year. I love, this is why I love university settings. I think the spiritual journey for so many people takes hold when they have the opportunity to do it on their own for the first time, and that really speaks to me. So after my freshman year, I started praying five times a day. That's when I decided to start covering my hair, not because I felt it was required by the Quran, but because I wanted to represent the kind of Muslim women I read about and was inspired by, and because I wanted to live the idea of modesty, which is um, both for men and women, and for uh, and my expression of wearing a headscarf is about publicizing my intellect and privatizing my sexuality. And that is what it is for most women. Certainly it takes on more political uh, interpretations in some parts of the world, but um, for me it was a symbol of identity and a symbol of pride. It was also a symbol that cut short my journalism career before it ever even started. Um, I graduated, I would, uh, worked at the Daily Bruin all four years, was the first uh, editor-in-chief of the Daily Bruin uh, wearing the hijab or the headscarf. Um, and then I, and we won like top newspaper in the country under my leadership, uh, not to brag, but when I graduated and tried to get broadcast journalism jobs, I was told I just couldn't work in front of the camera because I wore a scarf. And to get to the religious freedom piece, it was a hard moment for me. I was 22 years old and it was all I ever wanted to do. And um, yeah, and I, uh, I had a choice in that, in, at that time where I thought I had a choice, I put myself in a false choice, I realize now, of for, you know, continuing to have my religious faith in the way that I felt comfortable with it and pursuing my professional aspirations. They couldn't coexist, so what did I choose? I chose my identity, I chose myself, I chose my faith. And I prayed and trusted that God would open up another way for it to happen. And it did, in an, in an unexpected way. I ended up becoming an advocate for American Muslims with media to try to help get better stories told and more authentic portrayals, and to try to tell my story, our story, um, in more rich and complex ways. And so I started in 2004 um, working for the Muslim Public Affairs Council and was thrust into a national spotlight um, immediately where um, I would say the bulk of my professional career has been in crisis response. It's two parts. A huge part of it is what the world dumps on us, um, is crisis response. And I've become a, you know, a media expert in that. Um, and people are, you know, get so proud and excited, like, oh, you're on TV. 
and to me, it's um, uh, uh, it's it's just something I have to do because uh, more uh, the only reason you're going to see me on TV is for telling bad news. Well, 15 years later, that's still kind of my reality nine times out of ten, and I think that that's a huge part of why we're still fighting an uphill battle in terms of our public representation. The opportunities are so few and far between; they're so short, and. Um, uh, yeah, and, and uh, you're, you're set up to be on the defense, and I've, I've learned some creative ways to get around that, and I'm happy to answer questions about that too, but um, I, in addition to that crisis response and working to put more people on the front lines of um, fighting extremism, any potential extremism that exists in the community and facing those facts, and also working to develop new leadership, so investing in young people so that they can be the change, right? So we created the Young Leaders Program so that young people can go into media, can go into Hollywood, can go into government and feel confident and, uh, and capable in doing that. Um, so my career has had this interesting duality of crisis response and putting out fires and dealing with the bad stuff and also really trying to build the stuff that we need in the process that our community really didn't have. I mean, we're a community that got exploded onto the national and international scene when we were just sort of in our nascent stages. Um, there are about three and a half million Muslims in the United States today. That number has gone up in the, uh, by about half a million in the last 10 or 15 years. So that's just 1% of the American population. I mean, if, yeah, the, you know, if you're unclear on that. Um, so we're a tiny, tiny population, but we're in all 50 states. And we don't have a national, like a, you know, I always tell people we don't have a Vatican, right? There's no, we don't have a central organizing structure, so it is a very organic and intense community life that is very individualized. And 9-11 uh, and these, gosh, almost 18 years since um, have forced us to grow up fast. And I think that the good news, and I'll try to end here, is um, that, and, and this is the, actually this is a good tie into my podcast, the reason I call my podcast Meeting the Moment is because that's what I've learned in 15, 20 years of my career is that we don't get to choose the moments, um, but we do get to choose how we respond to the moments. So I don't get, uh, I'm gonna be in a, I'm gonna be in crisis response whether I like it or not. But every time I have an opportunity to sit in a, you know, in a chair on a CNN studio, I have the opportunity to meet that moment and bring my authentic self and not be dragged into whatever frame is there. And, um, and in my house, we, we dubbed the word, uh, which <laughs> I think feels even more appropriate here, but the word is Christertunity, which many people only hear the Christ in that somehow. Uh, or <laughs> they hear it. But the, it's a mashup of crisis and opportunity. And it's based on the, you know, I'm sure you know there's a Chinese uh, word that has the duality of crisis and opportunity. But it's also based on, my, my experience has shown me that in every, in every crisis there is greater opportunity for progress and growth than you would ever have outside of the crisis. People's hearts and minds are more open in that moment than in non-crisis moments. And so if we can utilize those for growth, that's what I'm really interested in. And now as a parent of two young children um, and, you know, and a wife, I, uh, the future is not an abstract idea. It is, I'm looking at it every day in my four-year-old and my seven-year-old and wanting to deliver them a better world by the time they're teenagers. Right? Like I've got, a, <laughs> I've got a deadline, like I want them to have a better middle school experience than the kids are having today. Um, and so that's, yeah, th those are pieces of my experience. And today I live in Pasadena, which lets me tell people I'm Athena from Pasadena. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way to help you remember my name if you ever need to. And I, yeah, 
it was, I can't tell you what an opening that was for me. Just that. And again, the, there are later verses that, uh, that where there's sort of loose reference to Adam being created first and then uh, Eve being created. Um, and, and we don't have a concept of original sin. Again, we have like this, you know, like we talk about um, disagreements and theological distinctions. That is a theological distinction. They are both held responsible for their actions and they are both sort of punished or reassigned to earth <laughs> um, uh, co, you know, co-equally. All of that spoke to me because of, the, again, the, the, my foundational feelings. And so that created the opening. And then I saw that, again, according to what was pre-Islamic Arabia, women had no rights and were totally chattel like they were in other parts of the world. And the Quran in seventh century Arabia gave women the right to choose who they wanted to marry, the right to divorce, the right to inheritance, um, not full inheritance because it was still a patriarchal society. And the, you know, it is that we can talk more about that, but, um, but for a portion of the inheritance, inheritance so that they would not be stuck in a marriage that was uh, abusive, gave them the, the right and responsibility to hold if they held up, if they had, if they inherited or if they earned income to hold on to their own money and that the husband's uh, money is the family's money. So that again, there's an out, you know, there's an out. You're not stuck in a quote unquote stuck in a marriage. Of course, how these things are practiced doesn't always go back to the principles, but these were the principles that really opened my mind. And then even going to the hijab or the, uh, the scarf, it's not, it, when you look at the Quran, the actual text of the Quran, the verse that talks about the scarf said, tells men and women to both guard their modesty, to lower their gaze when they're faced with temptation, right? And tells the believing women to take their scarves because the, let's say, wealthier women in society in pre-Islamic Arabia were already wearing some type of headscarf to our knowledge, right? Imagine they're in desert societies, right? So there's, there's, there's draping going on. But they were exposing their chests. And so the verse says, tell them to take their scarves and to cover their chests. And so it's basically about guarding your modesty. That has been interpreted by the vast majority of male scholars, and I were a predominantly male scholar tradition, not exclusively, but as meaning cover this and cover this, right? And cover it all in other places. Only in Saudi Arabia and Iran make you or force women to cover. And that goes directly against what the Quran teaches, which is there is no compulsion in matters of faith. That's a direct quote from the Quran. There is no compulsion in matters of faith. So what they are doing is a violation of the text that they proclaim to be pushing. So all of that muddiness that I learned about excited me. And the fact that it was connected to my family roots gave me an extra in, right? Like I, my question at my 18, 19 year old self was, am I keeping it or am I throwing it away? It was not, uh, and now as I examine that time in my life more, I didn't necessarily do a journey of let me study all the different faiths. It was more, is this for me, is this not for me? And I was genuinely shocked when I felt that it was for me. And I also realized that it was gonna have to be a choose your own adventure, like that the patriarchal interpretations that were out there were not suitable to me. And that I wouldn't talk about feminism or my very pro-woman stances in public ways, but that I would continue to just assert myself. And so I have been able to do that with the love and support of mostly male mentors. And that's, uh, that's the internal contradiction of, I think, a life of faith. And I imagine in the Church of Christ, you, <laughs> you, uh, you live that internal contradiction as well. So uh, and as you talk about hijab and some of the, some of the gender issues, it's, it's interesting. So there are, there are nearly a billion Muslim women in the world, and, and a recent stat that I had read said that maybe half wear the hijab. 
Less than, um, half. Less than half. And so you do have, I mean, what we, what we see are the images of Saudi Arabia and Iran, and we hear those stories. And yet it's a much more complicated story than that. And also the fact that in the United States, the wearing of the hijab uh, really was sparked. I, I mean, a lot more women started to wear the hijab by choice after 9-11. Is it, can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, so my choice was in 96. So I feel really blessed that I got to graduate college before 9-11 happened and that a lot of my, this spiritual quest really happened in a more neutral setting. It's a totally different reality for people who grew up after 9-11 um, when they're, all of these questions just got so much more politicized and, um, and dangerous. I mean, just, I mean, considering your own identity and you're like, am I choosing to be a Muslim? You know, the question I asked myself at 18 had a very different uh, flavor to it just a few years later for young people. Um, sorry, I'm in the, the memory mind hole and I forgot, I got a wormhole and I forgot your question. But, well, that's okay. <laughs> I'm going no, back there. Yeah, but, no, I was just saying how uh, many women chose to start yes. wearing the hijab after so, the as, a, as a public expression of faith and as a like, sort of symbol of pride. Again, uh, so, and this is, my own story is indicative of many um, second and third generation Muslim women, which is when I started uh, covering, my parents were against it. When I told my parents that I wanted to start covering, my dad especially was like, what are you doing? Like, you're not gonna be able to get a job. Like, people are gonna harass you. Like, why would you do this to yourself? And your mom doesn't wear a scarf. It's disrespectful to her. And our neighbors don't know we're Muslim. Like, you're, what, you're putting us on blast. Like, there were so many, uh, there were so many layers to it because again, with the, the way that they carried their faith was private. And it was scary for them to be public. And we were, we were white passing, we are, we are white, right? We're not just white passing, but we, we, are, we don't look Muslim, people don't assume it. And that was much more safe to them. And so my choice was rocking the boat. In fact, they forbade both my sister and I from wearing headscarves when we went to visit them in San Diego for a full year. Because, it, yeah, so I would go visit my parents and take off my scarf when I turned onto their block and hang out with them for the weekend and then get back in the car and then put my scarf back on and go back to UCLA. And they knew, and I knew, like it was uh, open secret, but that was the only way that they, you know, they could hang for a while. And then uh, my mom had a health emergency and I had, they had what you might call a come to Jesus moment. And, uh, and, uh, and they kind of rediscovered a deeper layer of their own spiritual life. And now they're far more practicing and on my back about things than, uh, <laughs> than they were back then. So, yeah, so, you know, the, the, the way that things can, uh, can pan out. And thank you for sharing that. I mean, any, anytime you share family stories like that, you're welcome, you're welcome yeah. to send to a kind of holy ground. Yeah, and it's so indicative of so many people. Like, so young women today more and more often are wearing headscarves because of, again, it's pride and identity, and they're being fashionable. Like, if you go online and you, you know, Google young Muslim women, we were drab. Like, I was wearing men's shirts in college. You know, like, they are, yeah, like, these amazing fashionistas now and taking pride in their, their looks and their modesty at the same time. And that's, I think, a huge symbol of progress, too. Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge for us because we, we just don't experience open secrets in our family. So it's a joke. I If I can ask one more part of that. I mean, you, you're talking about your expressions in a time of college. You're coming to your own sense of identity, your own expression and understanding of your faith, the public expression of that. But now that takes on the dimension of being a mother. What's it like being a Muslim woman in the United States now when you wear the hijab and you go to a mall or you go to an airport or whatever and you're, you have your seven-year-old or your 
five-year-old listening. Talk a little bit about those dynamics in Jamaica. Yeah, I'll, I'll say first that I um, I never pictured myself being a mom, and so this is it's just been an incredible journey. So I uh, yeah I um, and I say that because yeah I just I it, I thought I had to, my career was going to be it, and I met an incredible man who I thought okay I could I could yeah we could do this together, and so being a parent has been one of the best gifts God has given me. And as like all of you who are parents, my heart is outside of my body at all times. Um, and so when I'm out on the streets and stuff, I, you know, we live here in Los Angeles and I feel, uh, I think probably sometimes I feel a false sense of security. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think twice about things. And I've been wearing a scarf for 20, well, now I'm, 20, I'm 42. So yeah, over 20 years. Um, and so I, I am, sometimes oblivious to the looks that I get in public or the, you know, the, and my husband is much more aware of it. My children are much more aware of it. And that's how it sort of factors in. And I, my kids go to uh, 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 an Islamic school in Pasadena. Um, it's the first uh, Islamic school in the country to get a blue ribbon award from the Department of Education. And, uh, and they, so they, yeah, so they, they're, they're Muslims, uh, Muslimness is part of the, the fabric, and it's also a very diverse place, right? There's women who cover, women who don't. There's, yeah, women who uh, wear shorts. There's women, like, there's, a, you know, a whole range of stuff. My son asked me the other day, Mama, why do you cover your hair? And I don't want you to cover your hair anymore. He's seven, seven and a half. And he's like, you know, in the Quran, it's not required, right? So I, my kids are empowered. <laughs> and, and so these are not conversations I can duck at their age. And my four-year-old, who's, who's my daughter, that exist within their faith. And I don't take for granted that they're gonna choose to be Muslim either. That's a hard reality for me to work my way towards. But just in the same way that my faith journey could have ended up differently, I know, like in this day and age, I respect that their faith journey could end up differently. And I think that, that the data that's out there, it forces a reckoning for us. Like we, it's not, faith is not what it used to be. And I, what, one of the reasons our friendship is so dear to me and, and so many of these interfaith friendships is that us people of faith, we're all in it together now. I, we're uh, we're the, the growing minority. Um, and so, I, you know, my mentor, Dr. Myra Tui, used to say, to be religious in the 21st century is to be interreligious. And that's, I, you know, I, and 15 years ago that didn't hit me in the same way that it hits me today. But that, I, I feel that, especially in the Abrahamic tradition, we're, we're on the same path. We don't have to agree about the details of that path, but I, uh, but I, I know we're in it together. And so I, as long as my kids stay on the path of faith, I, I think they'll probably be satisfied. I, and that's kind of what we really stress is we expose them to, uh, we were just talking beforehand about, they just purchased, so my husband's an Egyptian by background, and, and I didn't know in Egyptian traditions, the first time they got to participate in an egg hunt that's somehow rooted in Easter and Egyptian culture, uh, some half of like a spring. I'm not quite sure where what it's rooted in. Um, but my kids, you know, they do that. We celebrate Christian Christmas with our Christmas friends. We celebrate the high holidays with our Jewish friends. And we invite people to celebrate uh, Ramadan with us and our holidays. That's that's what I wish I'd had more access to growing up so that I felt normal alongside other people's normal. And that's what I want them to feel like is it's all normal. Like being, you know, this person has that, this person has that. All of that is okay and it can all coexist. 
So it's, yeah, and I say that, and I'm also just really grateful that they're young. Uh, I'm not gonna talk about the, uh, the president here very much, but I'm really glad that I don't have to talk to them about the president very much, uh, even though it still feels the same. Um, and, and I appreciate you saying uh, that, and part of what I said at the beginning, uh, the religious part, um, and part of what I said at the beginning is I find in college students right now this craving challenges of our time is figuring out for ourselves and helping model to young people what it means to be rooted and convicted in specific traditions with specific convictions, even that may be in some ways mutually exclusive with others, and yet still do that in a wider community of respect and friendship and witness and challenge <coughs> one another in various ways. So I, I appreciate that. I can't, I, this, our time is disappearing quickly, and I do want to give at least a chance for a question or two from audience if, if there are any, but let me ask one more question that's related to all of this. You spent a lot of your career, you talked some about the gender challenges and the way that's played out. You've also spent a lot of your career, as you said, um, addressing challenges in the Muslim world, or at least challenges that we especially hear about in the media. And the fact is there is a lot of violence and a lot of intolerance affiliated with Islam right now and for people doing things in the name of Islam. Understand that a little bit. Um, okay. <laughs> Twenty-five uh, words. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so yes, that's true. And uh, my answer to this changes like every month because the world is changing so quickly. Um, so I think in the decade after 9/11, loosely, we faced so much more domestic extremism that had Muslim perpetrators um, involved than we have faced in the last five, yeah, five to eight years, let's say. This, the things are just changing. So in that period of time, we were in a constant cycle of, we were in this battle for the soul of Islam more actively, let me put it that way, because you had Al-Qaeda, you had um, uh, uh, ISIS later that developed, but all these, exactly, sort of predating, um, you had the Taliban, you had all these sort of different expressions, but then we had things like Boko Haram pop up and all, you know, and then the, you remember the Quran uh, desecration riots, uh, the, the cartoon, like just one crazy crisis after another that was imposed on us, but that was a flare up in some part of the world that the story then got universalized when it was told through media and then as a Muslim in America, you had to sort of be the reaction or the translator of how that, what that means for your faith. So my point with this is that the level of extremism that we were dealing with then or the number of incidents were higher and it um, had a really outsized effect because people also understood Islam much less. Um, people today understand Islam more. They're not necessarily any less afraid. I mean, there's, you know, the difference between what you know and what you feel and, uh, you know, we can talk about that, but um, but the violence has actually gone down. And even when we think about ISIS today and the horrific attacks in Sri Lanka that I, I have no words, that has, it has sickened me and so, you know, every Muslim that I know um, around the world, um, these things are, uh, they, they are paralyzing sometimes, and yet they are um, the, what we would like to think are sort of the, the death gap 
because ISIS is losing in the Middle East, it is trying to show its force in other parts of the world, right? And so these, these, these attacks are frightening and, uh, and there is so little that any of us can do about it. It is not, that is, the, ISIS is not a battle for the soul of Islam kind of conversation because they are not Islamic extremism, they are Islamic deviance. They, you know, like that's, a, this is a deviation from Islam. It, you can't call that extremism. Like Al-Qaeda, I could, you know, even in that we could say like, okay, they're like taking some wild extreme thing. ISIS takes uh, cherry pick, um, obscure, not even Quranic necessarily citations and universalizes them. Like their sexual slavery thing with the Yazidis, it, 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 it's, it's all beyond the pale. There's nothing about Islam in that. So, and 90% of their victims have been other Muslims. This is also one of the untold stories since 9-11 is that 90% of the victims of Islamic terrorism since 9-11 have been Muslims. And so all of these realities are out there and then the good news is that um, over 90% of Muslims worldwide are against ISIS, or against all of this, based on religious grounds. And they're against terrorism based on religious grounds, right? And so there is, that battle for the soul of Islam has been happening. And I think that we're in a much better place now because I mean, even though these revolutions across the Middle East have not panned out the way that any of us had hoped, um, that spirit of taking back Islam, of taking control of agency, I think has manifested in really interesting ways. So you do have this battle sort of playing out and you do have young people saying, we, you know, you, you have folks who are attracted to ISIS and they're tiny in number, but you have all these other people who are saying like, okay, is, is spirituality even relevant to me? Like the uh, Islam Muslims take a lot of pr uh, pride in the fact that apparently we're like the, uh, the fastest growing religion in the country. But the truth is that just as many people are leaving Islam as are entering Islam. And that's probably true of all of our faiths unresolved questions around violence and uh, intolerance and extremism um, continue to be one of those factors, right? So, how do I wrap this up? Um, <laughs> violence continues to be a problem, and it's a problem that hits home for Muslims. And extremism continues to be a problem that is so isolated and it's so cancerous, and extremism isn't taking hold in mosques. We know this from the, from the data now. It's not the mosques that are the problem, it's the internet, right? Just like people are getting um, uh, becoming uh, uh, white nationalists uh, who could then become violent, uh, you know, uh, skinheads is what I want to say. But uh, in the same way, you have young disenfranchised people who then get not just radicalized online, they get brainwashed into thinking that joining ISIS is the way that they're going to save the world or whatever. That is happening online. It's not happening in mosques. So it's a problem that we have to continue to face. And I think that. This is where social media is great news because our young people have more access to better information just as much as their trash online, right? The white, yeah, right? <coughs> Twitter has a hard time kicking off the white nationalists. They have a hard, they didn't have a hard time finally kicking off ISIS and all these other uh, uh, voices that have been deemed extreme. So this, yeah, I think that extremism and deviance, moral deviance is something that cuts across all faith lines and that's uh, gonna pose a problem for our next generations. Um, yeah, I mean, when you go back to Poway, that young man, 19 years old, uh, was responsible for killing that, pro killing the woman in the Poway synagogue. He also took credit for setting fire to the mosque in Oceanside maybe a month ago. So hate and extremism are not particular. They don't say, oh, I only don't like black people. I only don't like gay people. I only don't like Muslims. I only don't like Mexicans. No, I only don't like anybody who's not like me.
right? And that's, uh, we have a much bigger problem on our hands. Um, so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> but. Yeah, well, good. Well, we, we do just have a couple of minutes, and we do need to be finished by 9.30. There's another class or something coming in after this, but uh, so we only have time for maybe one or two questions. But, um, but yeah, let, does anyone have? Yes, sir, you're on the front row. Since you were sat on the front row, you get first. Uh, Have, uh, we just have a couple of uh, minutes left if you'd like to kind of uh, yeah, 
by the way, Jesus. Uh-huh. I, I, <laughs> when people step to me in the elevator and say, do you love Jesus? Because that happens sometimes. I'm like, I love Jesus. I think that they like, accept Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I have a picture that I show in class sometimes of, uh, of a woman, I believe in Turkey, and her hijab is a headscarf, and her hijab says all over the place, has little hearts and says, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, certainly some very important differences in what we believe about Jesus and the, and the work and the identity of Jesus, but uh, also something that is certainly a, a wonderful and good starting point of, of our relationship. We do need to bring this to a close. Uh, I, I, I just want to end with a couple of comments, but before I do that, if you'll please share your appreciation to Adina. Just to- <laughs>